<laughs> yeah, as, as Joel says, this is unfamiliar for me. I'm very used to put me in front of 10,000 people with a guitar in front of me and I'm all good. Put me in front of 70 friends with a microphone and it's a different story. So, and uh, Nikki, come up. So, this morning we're looking at Psalm 122. This is going to be a little bit of a back to school. So, we're hitting history, we're hitting geography. We'll get some English, we'll get maths in there, second languages will be in there, music appreciation will be in there, we're going back to school. So let's start, Nikki, if you would like to read the psalm for us, it will be on the screen as soon as I get this guy working, pointer, pointer. Yes, I give it now. <laughs> I rejoiced with those who said to me, let's go to the Lord's house. Now our feet are standing on your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city joined together in unity. That is where the tribes go up, the Lord's tribes. It is the Lord for Israel to give thanks there to the Lord's name. It is the thrones of justice are there, the thrones of the house of David. Pray that Jerusalem has peace, that those who love you have rest. Let there be peace on the walls, let there be rest on the fortifications. For the sake of my family and friends, I say, peace be with you, Jerusalem. For the sake of the Lord our God's house, I will pray for your good. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, God, we thank you for your word, thank you for the psalm, thank you for all the things that it brings to us. God, we pray for, for the words to, to fall deep into people's souls this morning. Thank you. Right, so before we get into this, the detail of all of this, let's just orientate ourselves. So we're in the Songs of Ascent. These are 15 psalms between what's it, 120 and 134. This is actually the third one. We've skipped over Psalm 121. Um, Psalm 121 is the one that says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Um, as a cyclist, there's a few cyclists thinking for this morning. I think we know that feeling well. I'm saying, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? The runners are probably going to identify as well. Um, yeah, I think we need our, our, our help from the Lord in that one. So we're, we're not going into that one this morning, but just that you know that's the one in between uh, what Steve preached last week and this one. Um, these psalms were the ones, essentially they're the Spotify playlist that the people of Jerusalem would have been singing during their pilgrimages to Jerusalem. So three times a year they were instructed to come to, to Jerusalem uh, and those were, we looked at festivals a little while ago, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, those three feasts, they were instructed to come through to Jerusalem. Now today is actually Pentecost. Today is Pentecost Sunday. So it's relevant that we're talking one of the Psalms that they would have sung, going to Jerusalem to celebrate those festivals. Written by David, this one. So David wrote three of the Songs of Ascent. Uh, of the 15, David wrote three, Solomon wrote one. We don't know who wrote the other. Where's my maths? I told you we were going to maths. 
The Thank you. <laughs> are they 11 are anonymous? We don't know. Could have been David? We're not too sure. So David lived somewhere around a thousand years before Christ, somewhere around 1000 BC. And we know very little, the Bible tells us little about his childhood. We see him as a baby. And then we see this one little glimpse of Jesus at 12 years old. And in that glimpse is this pilgrimage going to Jerusalem. So these songs that we are going through here are songs that Jesus would have been very familiar with, going to Jerusalem, singing these songs on his way. Uh, I had a look quickly. So this is a map of Jerusalem, kind of as it would have been at Jesus' time. There, somewhere around there, there's Jerusalem, just to the bottom. Jesus lived in Nazareth. So that journey there, Jerusalem to Nazareth, somewhere around 130 kilometers. So this is not a short little trip. When he was, he was born in Bethlehem, which is just a stone's throw from Jerusalem, but grew up in Nazareth. And this is dangerous territory also here. So this is Samaria, which was hostile territory. So probably they would have avoided much of that. This trip that they went on three times a year would not have been a quick little Certainly not getting in your car and driving to church on a Sunday morning. This was a, a journey. Some say it could have taken as long as two weeks each time they went. Because they wouldn't have traveled during the heat of the day. They wouldn't have traveled at night. They wouldn't have traveled on Sabbath. They brought livestock with them. They brought children, elderly. This was a journey. This was a trip. So when we're talking about a pilgrimage, this wasn't just a little, okay, let's pack the bags and we'll go for tomorrow. This was a a trick. This song that we're looking at, Psalm 122, although it's the third one, it's probably the last one that they would have sung. So it's the one that says, <laughs> it says, Now our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. So this is the one, verse 2, we got here. We are here. God, we're here. <laughs> now our feet are in your gates. Okay, so somewhere around 1000 BC, this is when David lived. That's when he would have written this psalm. David conquered the city of Jebus, Jebus, and he renamed it Jerusalem. It was built on the hills. Jerusalem sits at an elevation about 780 meters above sea level. So this is your geography lesson. Um, that's why they ascended. Songs of ascent, they're going up. It's quite a trip. David ruled Jerusalem for 33 years, often called the city of David, even long after David had handed the reins over. This was David's city, uh, built on Mount Zion, which you would also hear very frequently throughout the Psalms and throughout scriptures. David did not build the temple. David wanted to build the temple. But he was told he couldn't build the temple because he'd shed too much blood. The Bible said he painted the ground red with the blood that he spilled. We often see David as this warring king, and he was. He had conqueror, but he was also a man after God's own heart. We'll get to that in a bit. He wanted to build the table, he, uh, the temple. He wasn't allowed to. So he built the tabernacle. He wanted God's presence to rest in the city of Jerusalem. Second uh, Samuel tells the story of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle, into the tent. And that's where God's presence dwelt. Okay, so just a quick idea. That's more or less what Jerusalem would have looked like in David's time. 
doesn't feel very spectacular, but this was a city that he absolutely loved. This is the place where he wanted God's presence to, to dwell. There's more or less an idea of what the tabernacle might have looked like. Not very spectacular compared to the temple. We'll get to that in a bit. But David made it a priority to provide a place for people to come and worship. In Chronicles, uh, Chronicles 22, this is David talking to his son Solomon. He said, Now, my son, may the Lord be with you and may you success as you build the house the Lord of the Lord your God as he said you would to both verse 14 said I've taken great pains to provide for the temple wasn't allowed to build it but he provided for it and what did he provide a hundred thousand talents of gold a million talents of silver quantities of bronze and iron too great to be weighed and wood and stone and you may add to them <laughs> I've given you all this and you can still add more you may you have many workers, stone cutters, etc., etc. David has provided for Solomon to build the place for worship. He wasn't allowed to do it himself, but he says, "I'll give you everything that you need to do, and then you can still add more." Yes, from Matthias. Hundred thousand talents of gold and a million talents of silver. You know, my mind says, "What is that today?" Hundred thousand talents of gold. 3,750 tons of gold. I, I, I figure that to be more than 4 trillion rands worth of gold. Half a trillion rands worth of silver. And then bronze, it says it's too much to even weigh. It's weighed all that gold. <laughs> okay, so David says, act of worship. I really want people to have a place to worship God. The most honoring place I can find, I can make. And, uh, and so he provides for that. This was David's life mission. He wanted to make this extravagant place because David was a worshiper. In 2 Samuel, where David brings the Ark uh, of the Covenant to Jerusalem, David worshiped. He says, David danced before the Lord with all his might. He was so excited. Apparently he got so carried away in worship, he got half naked, he was dancing. Now, here's this mighty king. He strips down... And he starts worshipping, he's so carried away. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, <laughs> to the point that his wife criticizes him and said, Look at this idiot, what are you doing here? And he says, I will become even more undignified than this in my worship of God. We know David is this giant slayer, slayer the nation conqueror, but before any of those things, he was a worshipper. He worshipped as a, as a shepherd boy, um, and he wrote so many of the psalms that we see here, including this one and, and many others. Um, when he wrote this one, this psalm, I'm sure he had in mind this glorious temple that he provided for, in mind for people to be coming to to worship God. So if that was David's story, Steve encouraged me to tell a little bit of my story as well uh, in terms of worship. So I think for me, nine years old is when I started music lessons in school. I loved music. I don't know. Just all of this, it was a thing that struck my passion. Uh, I grew up in the church. So from the earliest years, as soon as I was able to, 
I was encouraged to join worship teams so by 12 years old. Can you picture a 12-year-old Tim with a recorder playing worship? <laughs> Thank goodness you don't have to be subjected to that. Um, and I always felt it was what God was saying, what have you got in your hand, like he said to, uh, to Moses, what have you got in your hand? And for me it was a recorder. Uh, <laughs> at 14 years old, my brother got a guitar for his birthday. I played it more than he did. Um, a few months later, I led worship for the first time. And there was the sense that, you know the verse that says, God gives you the desires of your heart, which is ambiguous. And I love it because it's actually both. God puts the desires into your heart, but then he fulfills those things as well. And in, in helping people come to a place of worship, that for me was, was the desire of my heart. I got a prophecy as a teenager. Um, and the prophecy was that I should hone and develop my skills to be like Kenaniah. And Ken and I was an interesting person. We find him again in Chronicles. Uh, Chronicles 15 says, Ken and I, the head Levite, was in charge of the singing, and that was his responsibility because he was skilled at it. And as I was looking at David now again and, and bringing the Ark of the Covenant, I found Ken and I again. It says, Now David was clothed in the robe of linen. This was before he stripped off and was dancing. As were the Levites who were carrying the ark back to Jerusalem, and the musicians, and Kenaniah, who was in charge of the singing of the choirs. So in that worship that David was worshipping is, is Kenaniah. For me, that's just <laughs> God let, let, let my offering of worship be significant in moments like those. I love worship. I believe God opens our hearts to himself in worship in a way that doesn't happen in other places. It's a direct interaction between us and God. As I'm speaking to you now, we are interacting, but in worship, it's us and God. Our hearts directly with God. It's personal, but it's also corporate. Okay. Shall we get into the meat of Psalm 92? <laughs> Worshipping is a joy. This one starts, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let's go to the Lord's house. On this journey they were excited. Guys, let's go. We're going to God's house. We're going where God is. There's joy. There's joy. We equate this to worshipping together, coming together in, in God's house here. I think that's what the parallel that we can draw. A lot of us going together to, to worship is similar to what we get to do here today. I won't go into much detail on this one, but worshiping together, do you know what we're doing here, coming to church on a Sunday, is by far the most done thing in any week in South Africa and probably across the world. So this is population of South Africa who profess some religion or other. And I won't go through, you can have a look at the detail later if you'd like. But essentially everything here is a form of Christianity. These are the, your African independent churches or initiated churches. 
You've got your more European style or, or churches initiated in Europe. But essentially, 78% of South Africans profess some sort of Christianity. 78%. No religion, what we might call atheism over there, traditional African religions. Islam, I was interested. Only 1.6% of South Africans. We've got Hinduism, Judaism. is a very thin slice that you might not even be able to see in other religions. The point is 78% confess some kind of Christianity. More than that, 56% of Christians, so of that 78, more than half go to church every single week. So we're talking 27 million Christians every Sunday coming to church. This is something as a people that we want to do. And we're choosing to come and worship God. We ask ourselves why there is so much work. I mean, why do so many people voluntarily come to church every Sunday? Why is this such a fundamental part of our Christian experience? And we will dive into that a bit more during the week in life groups. So here's your plug for life groups. If you're not involved in one, Okay, so verse one, I rejoice with those who go to the house of the Lord. We know David found a lot of joy in the house of the Lord. I want to touch on three points here as we go through the psalm and, uh, and we go from there. So the first point, worship gives us a structure for life. Second point, worship satisfies our need to be in a relationship with God. And thirdly, worship focuses us on God's decisions. What is worship? It comes from worth-ship. And we're showing God's worth. If you are a craftsman, you have craftsmanship. When you're a friend, you show friendship. When you're expressing God's worth, you're giving worthship. Okay. There we go. Okay. So Jerusalem, verse three says, Jerusalem is built like a city, joined together in unity. That's where the tribes go up, the Lord's tribes. So in Hebrews, Jerusalem was the place to go for worship. That's where God's presence was, in the tabernacle and later in the temple. In Jerusalem, people experienced what it meant to be with God. Through celebrating these festivals, they experienced God's saving power and His protection and His mercy and His grace and His love. We see the, the progression here from personal to corporate. So I rejoiced, singular, with those who say, let's go to the Lord's house. Now, our feet are standing. Okay, so we're moving from, from the personal to the togetherness, from individual to corporate. In many of the old translations, they would have said Jerusalem was a city compacted together. So this is a picture of it being various parts, but joined together. Most modern translations like this one we're reading from say it's a city in unity or joined together. David is using a bit of poetic license here as a parallel between the city and the church in worship. Like Jerusalem, we are joined together. We are unified. Okay. It's the city to which the tribes ascend. All God's tribes go up to worship. All the tribes are together in unity and in worship. And this is what it is for us to be in the house of the Lord, to worship together. Where are we here? Number two. 
Worship satisfies our need to be in a relationship with God. It says it's the law. It's the law for us to give thanks to the name of the Lord. In worship, we fulfill this instruction to praise God. It's not just a suggestion. Worship is actually an instruction. And we were created for this. It's in our DNA. When we get to heaven, there's going to be a whole lot of worship. So get used to it. It's coming. I'm looking forward to those heaven worship sessions. I want to hear David leading worship. Kenaniah leading worship. That's going to be fun. Hope I get my chance to. Okay. You notice earlier, I didn't say that people, when we looked at all the, the religion, people want to, but I didn't say people always feel like it. Because worship is actually very little about feelings. Yes, we want to, but we don't always feel like it. I love this, po- uh, this quote from Paul Sherry. It says, the Bible wastes very little time on the way we feel. Yes, there is feeling, but it's actually not that important. Feelings are not a very good thing to base very much of our decisions on. So when you don't feel like it, it's actually not hypocritical to still want to praise and worship, even through pain, through sadness, through anger, you might be worried of feeling anxious, feeling apathy, feeling distance and frustration. It's not wrong to choose to worship. Psalm 42 says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to God's house, right? house of the Lord, under the protection of the mighty one, with shouts of joy and praise. Why, my soul, are you so downcast? He's experiencing this moment of sadness and pain. Why are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And then he says, put your hope in God, forget I will praise him, my Savior and my God. We're experiencing one of those lows, but yet we say, we praise God. We can tell our souls, hey soul, we're going to pray. We're going to worship. We live very much in the age of sensation where it's, do you feel like it? Or do you do what feels right? Or you must be true to what you're feeling. But that's not what the Bible tells us. We don't rely very much on our feelings. They're not very reliable to lead us. God cares about our feelings, but they shouldn't lead us. In obeying the commandment to praise, we find that our fundamental need to be in a relationship with God is nurtured and satisfied. Right, point three. Worship focuses us on God's directives and His decisions. Verse five says, Because the thrones of justice or judgment are there, the thrones of David's house. So this word is often told in languages, second language, here we go. This word that they translate justice in this version usually is translated judgment. And you'll see judgment, I think it's 420 times they use this word judgment, and most of the time, it, or of the 420 times, almost 300 times they, they translated judgment in English. This judgment of justice is the decisive word by which God straightens things out and puts things right. That's the way we should understand that word judgment. The decisive word by which God straightens things out and puts things right. Because judgment or justice is actually an act of worship. It's not a verb in the sense. Well, it's a verb, it's not an adjective. It's not looking at what's happened and describing it 
or giving a verdict. It's actually a verb of putting things into action. It's not announcing innocent or guilty. It's actively showing mercy, showing love, showing compassion, righting wrongs, and doing good. It's not only how we should act towards others, but this is how God acts towards us. He looks at us and His justice is showing us mercy and showing us love and compassion. David Swanson says, to really understand justice according to Scripture, we need to know God. And the primary way, one of the primary ways we know God, not simply knowing about God, is through worship. Justice and worship are interconnected. So the question for us, in what situations, in what places do we open ourselves up to the justice of God? To the judgment of God? Where do you allow yourself to be open to His promptings of you? Where do you open yourself up to be allowed to receive God's course corrections in your life? One of the primary ways that God has put in place to open ourselves up to Him is through worship. Hebrews 10 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now by meeting together, what happens? We hold unswervingly. We remind ourselves, we remind each other that he is faithful. We spur each other on. We encourage we encourage towards love, we encourage towards good deeds. And this is even more necessary in difficult times. Why is that? Because when times get hard, we need each other even more. And because when things are already difficult, it becomes harder to move towards love and good deeds. Without meeting together, we're likely to default to our natural preferences. We're likely to put in our favorite worship songs. We're likely to read our favorite verses anyway. And that doesn't challenge us. We meet together to be challenged for God to give those course directions. Right. So the psalm ends in this very well-known, often, often quoted passage that says, Pray that Jerusalem has peace. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Let those who love you have rest. Let there be peace on your walls and let there be rest on your fortifications. The word pray here English lesson again, second language lesson, doesn't get translated pray anywhere else. So pray is probably not quite the right meaning. It's not entirely wrong, but it's not really what, what they were getting at here. The word pray is actually more like ask. But it's a very forceful form of the word ask. It's almost demand. So demand peace. The word, okay, second language, here we go. The word is shalom, which is the same root word as the name Saul, King Saul. Because when the Israelite people demanded a king, they didn't pray for a king, they didn't politely ask for a king, they demanded a king. So King Saul, same root word as that pray or ask, it's a demanding. Shalom, same root as Saul. Pray is not necessarily wrong because when we are asking or demanding of God, we are praying. That is a form of prayer, but it's a very insistent form. So what are we demanding? 
Other translations will say pray for peace and prosperity. It's a bit of a wordplay here. I'm going to have to warm up my tongue here. Let me try and get it to you in Hebrew. Shalu Shalom Yerushalayim Yishmael Ochlevach. It's actually that word. Okay, everybody say it together. Repeat Shalom Shalom Yerushalayim Yishmael Ochlevach. It's this play on the sound. Shalom Shalom. Shalom being that ask demand. Shalom for Shalom in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem. So we're asking for shalom. We're asking for peace. Peace is a very shalom, deep word. It means safe, happy, friendly, welfare, prosperity, favor, wholeness. And shalom is the state of being in which nothing is missing and nothing is broken. Peace only really scratches the surface of the depth of the meaning there. Yishmael was shalvah, the original word is where they often translate to prosperity. Again, maybe not the full meaning of that word. Better understanding is that ease or security and freedom from worry that comes from a position of having all your needs met. So yes, it is prosperity, maybe, but it's more sense of peace and peace and ease from having all your needs met. So when we're praying for the shalom and the shalva of Jerusalem, isn't it crazy how God chooses to use us to bring that about? Yeah, we pray to God, God do, and God says, okay, go. And he doesn't, he, God is able to use whatever he wants, but he chooses to use us. So as we pray for the shalom and the shalva for Jerusalem, this is figurative and practical here, figurative and literal. Yes, we do pray this for Jerusalem, but our Jerusalem is Cape Town. This is where we live. This is where the presence of God lives with us. So we should be praying this for Cape Town as well. Right, let's bring this to a close. We should be careful. When preachers say, and closing, then they tend to close. If preachers say, and lastly, and then they tend to last and last. So, so lastly... <laughs> We worship a God whose ways are far higher than our ways. Isaiah 58, 55.8 says, My plans aren't your plans. My ways are not your ways. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my plans higher than your plans. I like to think of it this way. When you're sitting there, like when my children were three years old, I could say, who's got the better understanding? With, like, my adult brain or your three-year-old brain? Now we ask ourselves, where's the bigger gap between that three-year-old and myself or between God and my understanding? I put it to you that actually the gap between what I understand and what God understands is a bigger gap than what I can understand compared to a three-year-old. It's the difference between God as our Savior and God as our Lord. Well, we're very quick to say, God is my Savior. He saved me, he rescued me, can he save my soul? Yes and amen. But God as a Lord is a father, you can't say. God is your provider, but also God is your guide. God is your, uh, as your Lord who, who, who knows and understands and can give direction. In worship, we're putting God in his rightful place. He's not just an advisor. 
We take his instruction. Worship is so just not about me. So this reminds us, God is, worship has to be all about God. Here's my challenge for you this morning. I, I, I know we very easily, when we say, what do we worship God for? If I had to throw the question out, maybe let's do it. What do we worship God for? Give us some suggestions. What do we worship God for? For who he is. For who he is. Love it. We worship God for who he is. What else do we worship God for? To magnify. To magnify, to lift him up. Is there something else that's For his love. For his love. Yes, we worship him for his love. What else? What do we worship God for? Why do we worship God? For intimacy with him. Yeah. We very quickly fall into the default of worshiping God for what he does for us. And all of those things are absolutely right. And we should worship God for what he does for us. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But if we only worship God for what he does for us, that makes worship partly about us. Worship is only ever, or is, is totally always still about God. So, yeah, if we, if we worship God for what he does for us, in a way we're turning God into this wish-granting wish genie. God, we pray that you would give me a new job. God, we ask for your, for your favor as I go for, on a date. God, I pray for your providing for my family in and we worship God afterwards. God, thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you for, even God, thank you for saving me. You're still worshiping God for what he's done for me. So I want us now, we're going we're gonna to move, I'm going to sing one song and then the worship team's going to join for, for a closing song afterwards. But as we think about this, I want to think about, is God worthy? We even say, God, we worship you for saving me. Thank you for redeeming us, for, for, uh, for rescuing us, and absolutely we should. But let, let's think this through. Was God worthy of worship when he was on his own in heaven before he created the heavens and the earth? Was God worthy in that moment? Yes. Was God worthy of worship and praise when he made the earth, made perfect with Adam and Eve, perfect in the God? Was God still worthy after man sinned? Was God worthy at the time of David? Yes. Worthy to be worshipped? He was. Mm -hmm. Jesus hadn't come yet. Was, G was God worthy of worship the day before Jesus arrived? Yes. Yeah. And if we were still sitting in that before Jesus came and saved us, if we were still sitting in that moment, God would still be worthy of worship. He was worthy the day Jesus was born and the day Jesus died and he's still worthy today. But Jesus coming does not, is not the thing that makes him worthy of worship. And if we only ever focus our worship through what Jesus did for us, we're missing out on the worthiness of God outside of that. Yes, we do thank Jesus for what he did. Absolutely. Don't care what I'm not saying. But if we only ever worship because of what Jesus did for us, we make it partly about us. Okay? So, 
gonna sing a song now, and you guys can 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 stay where you are. Let the song we'll put the words up. But as we do that, I want it to be a moment of worship. A moment where you worship God, not for what He's done for you, but just who He is. Let's focus on who He is. Uh, if you're worshiping to God, try not to use any words I or me. So we're not saying, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for blessing me. Thank you for loving me. Let it not be a me. You can use, God, you are holy. God, you are love. You're created. You're ex- we see your extravagance in nature. These kind of worship expressions that focus our worship on, what, on who God is, not on what he does for us. So this song, I'm going to try and get the technology to work. Um, painting a picture of the scene in heaven that I can't wait for. Crowds of people, heaven. Uh, let's see, I the angels and the elders all standing around the throne of God and worshiping. So this is the, the picture from that moment. one song together just as we lift God up and we praise him for his worthiness and we praise him for his glory and his power and his strength his creativity his love his compassion God we thank you for all that you are